Brilliant. Well, it's great uh, to be with you uh, this evening uh, and to share God's Word uh, with you all. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Now, in a room like this, there's probably all sorts of different answers. Um, I asked my son Jacob, um, and his was his birthday, which is less than two weeks away. He'll be three. He's very excited. Others might be getting excited for the coronation, just six weeks away. Um, for others, it might be something less exciting. Maybe a hospital appointment for a diagnosis or a phone call with bad news. A job offer, exam results, um, or exams. Um, good and bad, our humanity seems to mean that we spend our whole life waiting for something. Our whole life waiting for the next thing. And tonight we're going to get a glimpse a glimpse into the Psalms of what God, the universe, and every single person, whether they acknowledge it or not, is waiting for. Now, our psalm takes place in a kind of courtroom session scene as God brings charges against mankind. So let's begin with a summons to court. A summons to court. Is it work? Um, so our psalmist Asif uh, opens his psalm with God issuing this summons. God is coming in judgment, and the whole world is summoned to bear witness. Did you see how God is described in those first six verses? Verse 1, the mighty one, God the Lord, the one who has the authority to summon all peoples from the rising sun to the setting sun. Verse 2, he's coming from Zion, his holy hill. He's the perfection of beauty. He literally shines forth, radiant in glory. In verse 3, he's coming to earth. He's coming here. He's coming loudly. He's coming in anger. A devouring fire all around him. A mighty tempest, a storm. All of nature is affected by God's presence here. And verse 4, he calls to the heavens, he calls to the earth to bear witness. Is this how we're used to thinking about God? Our world often, our churches, our lives are filled with thinking of God as our loving Father in heaven, who is out, who is a distant, gentle, aloof character who is, who is, who's full of kindness and love. What a contrast this is. One we, we often gloss over, don't we? A God of power, authority, justice, and wrath. A God whose very presence affects the entire universe. A God who is in control, who rules the universe completely, whose voice reaches to the ends of the earth. He summoned his court. He's called the nations from the ends of the earth to come and bear witness. But who's in the dock? God is coming in wrathful judgment. But who is he coming against? Who is he going to speak against? Well, shockingly, it's not the pagan nations. It's not the pagan nations. It's Israel. God's covenant people. Did you see that in verse 4? He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God is coming in judgment and his judgment begins with the people of God. The Nathan, the nation who gathered by God at Sinai, the nation 
who became his covenant people, the nation of Israel who promised to be his people, worshipping him as their God. Well, so far we've met the God, the judge. We've seen that God's people are in the dock, but who are the witnesses? Who will testify and bear witness to this judgment? Well, God has gathered all of creation. All beings from heaven and earth are summoned to bear witness to this trial. They're gathered together to see God the judge in action. To see God judge his people. And to testify about what they have seen. So what accusations will God level against his people? How have they been doing Well, in the rest of the psalm, God is going to address two groups among Israel. As he declares his accusations against them and then delivers his verdict and challenges them to repent, to turn back to him. God addresses two groups and each time he's going to lay out his judgment and then he's going to challenge them to fix their issues as he shows them the path to salvation. Uh, the first group he addresses as his accusation of blood and toil comes. We see in verse 7 and 8. And they look like modern Israelites, don't they? He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. This group look the part, don't they? They have read the instruction manual of God's words and they are faithfully working hard at doing what it says. Sacrificing day in, day out. The sacrifices are always before God. They're constantly showing God their faithfulness. Every job God tells them to do is on the tick list and it is ticked off. And it's all ticked off. Their Bible reading, their prayer, their attendance, their sacrifice at the temple, it is all done. But it seems that amidst all their busyness, they have forgotten a very, very key thing. In the words of Banana Rama and Bumboy 3, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. These folks have read the timetable, they've read the instruction manual, they've read the to-do list of being a good Israelite. But they have forgotten, they have missed the whole point of it. This comes through in God's rebuke in verses 9 to 13. Did you see it as we read? God makes it clear that he doesn't need anything from his people. He doesn't need their sacrifices. God already owns every cow on every hill. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the birds of the hills. Everything that moves is his. The Israelites have forgotten that they don't sacrifice for God. They sacrifice to him. The sacrifices, the rituals, the actions of faithful Israelite life are not for their benefit, for God's benefit. It's for Israel. If God were hungry, all he has to, he has the fullness of the whole world to meet his needs, doesn't he? And anyway, in verse 13, he doesn't even eat the flesh or drink the blood. So if the sacrifices aren't for God's benefit, if God isn't pleased by people doing the thing that they've been told to do, if the very act of doing these things is landing the Israelites in the firing line of God's wrath, then what is the point? Well, it's the way that you do it that matters. Did you see that in verse 14? It says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving 
and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. What God wants from them is a relationship, not a ritual. It's worth noting um, that it is, um, as it is here, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It makes a lot more sense than other translations that um, have sacrificial thanks um, and other such versions. It is, it is the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the giving thanks that is key. He wants his people to make thanksgiving their sacrifice to God. Not cows, not goats. They'll be part of it, but it's the thanksgiving that's going to come. He wants them to fulfill their promises to him. To represent him on the earth. Uh, to show the world how great God truly is. As they live their whole lives in his sight. He wants them to call on him. To look to him as the centre of their lives. And work out everything else out from there. It's the way that they do it. It's the why that matters. A life lived acknowledging the glory of God. Living every moment with thankfulness. That the God of the universe wants a relationship with them. So that's group one. Faithful committed servants of God who need to remember that God is God. And doesn't need anything from them. And instead wants calls them to serve him out of thankfulness. For all he has done to make a relationship possible. So group one dealt with, God turns his attention to a second group within Israel. Accusation two, disobedient lawbreakers. Well right from the outset we can see that there is something wrong with this group. Because remember God is speaking to his covenant people here. These folk number themselves as part of Israel. And look at God's charge in verse 16. But to the wicked... God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? God calls out some of Israel as wicked, as evil. Folk that hold up their hands and say, yes, I'm an Israelite, I turn up the temple, I turn up for the feasts, I turn up for the festivals. I proudly claim the title of Israelite. When the census comes, I tick the box. They happily claim the benefits of being God's people. And yet a moment's look at their lives shows them up to be the God-haters they really are. They pay no attention to God's words. In verse 17, in verse 18, they, they praise thieves. They hang out with adulterers. Verse 19, their tongues run rampant. They speak evil. They speak lies. Verse 20, they slander their own family. Clearly their lives bear no resemblance to the life of humble thanks that we've seen God desires, does it? Well, how have they gone so wrong? Have a look at verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. They've gone so wrong by forgetting who God is. It's one of the reasons that Asaph the psalmist uses so many descriptions for God in this psalm, in the first few verses, to, to offer a counter, to, offer, to show this group's error. They've come to think that God is just like them, because he hasn't punished them straight away. When they've broken their covenant, they've assumed that it doesn't matter, it can't matter, God can't care that much because he hasn't punished them. 
So why should they? If God doesn't care about things, why should they? If God can't enforce his word, he must be too weak to worry about. Well, they've misunderstood God's patience. They've misunderstood God's mercy and thought it weakness. They've lost the fear of the Lord. Now, that's a view we see all over our world today, isn't it? People doing evil and assuming that God either doesn't care or is too weak to stop them. But that is a terrible, terrible misunderstanding. Because God is nothing like us. God is nothing like mankind. God is patient. God is loving. God is kind. But he is also powerful and righteous and good. And for these folks, time, it seems, is about to run out. God has summoned them to court. He's laid out the charges. He's rebuked them one final time. And yet, and yet, in his patience, he still offers them one last chance to repent. Do you see what God wants from his group, this group in verse 22? Mark this then. You can forget God. Lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving and sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Even at this late, late stage, God desired relationship, not punishment. Even despite all they have done, the evil they've done in his name, he still calls them to reconsider. God's patience is there for them. To give them time to come to their senses, to see God rightly, to hear his words and reorder their lives. Even in the midst of guilt and judgment and rebuke, there is great, great hope that the worst of sinners can come to see and know and trust the true God of the universe, can see how utterly unlike us he is, can put him on the throne of their lives and offer thanksgiving as their sacrifice and bring glory to God. What a joyous reminder it is of our great God. So let's conclude. What does God want from us? Hearts of thankfulness. Hearts of thankfulness. God has gathered his people in the dock. He has brought them his word to bear on their lives and given them warnings to come back to a true worship of God. Maybe you've already started connecting yourself and connecting this psalm into bits of your life. Maybe you've seen yourself or, or people you know in the guise of Israel here. But before we consider ourselves, whenever we're in the psalms, we must first consider Jesus. To see how Jesus sings this psalm, how he fulfills it and so allows us to see it with him. And Jesus truly embodies this psalm, doesn't he? His whole life was lived in thankfulness and dependence before God. We see it throughout the Gospels, don't we? How at every stage of his life, he was loving and kind. We see how often he prayed to God, how often he would be fed and nourished by God. Think of John 4, 32 to 34, where the disciples are off looking for food, they come back and Jesus tells them, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work. Jesus says his food, his nourishment, the source of his energy, is doing God's work. The thing that energised Jesus was the desire to see God's work done. Now it's obvious, isn't it, how committed Jesus was to God's work. We see it as he spent his time teaching and showing people and telling people who Jesus was, uh, who God was, and what it meant to live life as God's people. We see it as he obeys God's will through Gethsemane, through the trials to the cross, in joyful obedience to God. Jesus is the truest light who perfectly obeyed God, who didn't need to be rebuked, and so he has taken up his position at the right hand of God. Jesus is the one that will carry out this judgment. Jesus is the one that will come from heaven to judge his people. And so Jesus holds out the warnings of this passage to us, his people. But he also holds out the hope of rescue to us if we continue to turn back to him. The psalmist pictures God coming in fire from heaven to judge. Revelation 19, you've seen as a church family recently, shows us this Jesus, the rider on the white horse whose eyes blaze with fire as he comes in that final judgment. So how does this psalm speak to us through Jesus? Well, first it's a call to reflect on our heart attitudes to our service to God. It can be very, very easy over time to lose our fervor, to lose our joy as we live our lives as living sacrifices for God. I know from my own life how easily I can fall into thinking of my life as a job, with God as my employer, turning up day after day to work for him, whether I like it or not, whether um, I want to be there today or not. Completely forgetting my place as a sinner, as someone who can only serve God through the wonder of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. How easy it is to forget that we deserve to be torn to pieces in judgment. But through Jesus we have the joy of hope to serve him. So let's serve him with thankful hearts, remembering and encouraging one another of the joy and privilege it is to call ourselves God's people. And secondly, it's it's a call to examine the hypocrisy of our hearts, to examine the times when we could be numbered among that second group of people. People who claim to be God's people but who aren't living in a way that doesn't show. If so, then we need to hear God's call to repent again and again. To get this bigger view of God, to reorder our lives with him as our king and to turn our hearts to to thankfulness. So as we do, be aware of the watching world. It's easy to forget them, but remember that one God has called the whole earth to bear, to witness his words to his people. The patient, loving kindness that God shows us is a sign to the watching world that it's the invitation is open to them too. So let's live our lives in their sight as we acknowledge him, as we pray as we acknowledge him with our lips and our actions, as we are people of humble thankfulness, as we pray that we, he might show them the way of salvation too. 
How will making thanksgiving, our sacrifice to God, shine out into the world? Well, as we think about that in the coming weeks, let's pray. Father God, thank you so, so much for showing us salvation. Thank you for showing us clearly our sin. Thank you for showing us clearly our Saviour. Father God, please would you give us a bigger view of our sin, a bigger view of your mercy, a bigger view of your grace and forgiveness through Jesus. Father, would that grow in us truly thankful hearts as we seek to serve you. Give us joy in our lives. Give us joy in our service. And bring, uh, bring your great offer of rescue to our world. Please, Father, use us to grow your kingdom. Use us to turn lost hearts back to you. Father, please would you show people the salvation of God here in Otley, in Yorkshire, in the world around us, Lord. Father, that you might be glorified as people come to know and love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.